Good evening. I hope you're done answering your questions. My name is Wendy Lyon, and I am part of the summer teaching team. And yesterday, I almost lost my voice, and today it's scratchy, so please pardon my voice. Um, I love these stories, and I love that we've been able to study about Rahab the first week, and then Joshua and the Battle of Jericho, and it's just been such a joy and so fun to read and study about Elijah, and I can't wait to share it with you. I remember, and you probably remember this too, in high school English class when you're given a book list, and you don't get to choose your books. You just have to read whatever the teacher tells you to read because they're from different time periods and it makes you a well-rounded student. Um, I remember reading some really great books that I couldn't put down, and I remember reading some very boring books I couldn't wait to get through. And I, I really disliked reading depressing books because I just felt awful after I read read them. And the most depressing book I ever read was The Grapes of Wrath. How many have how read Grapes of Wrath? Trudge your way through it. Um, I know why John Steinbeck wrote it so we could identify with people during the Depression, but I was depressed once I read it. Um, this, uh, it was a story about a family during the 1930s um, uh, battling the Depression. So there you go. How, you can't get worse than that. A depressing book during the Great Depression. So you can't go much lower than that. The name of the family was the Jode family. They and their friends um, were just struggling to survive. And it was during a severe drought. And they were... Um, they lived off the land, and so everything that grew is, what they, is how they survived. Many of the family members starved to death. There were dust storms after dust storms. You remember that? Just dust everywhere. They lost their farm and another dust storm, and by the end of the book, you just want a bath and a drink of water. That's all you want. And by the last chapter, I thought, this has got to get better. I just need to see this family have some hope, and it never did. It was just um, depressing and um, left me feeling hopeless for their future. And the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, um, Israel, is, starts out just like the grapes of wrath. They are in the middle of a very severe drought, and it lasts for three long years. In an agricultural society, they were also dependent on the crops. Without rain, there was no food. The people were starving. You could eat your store. They had stored food, but once that was used, you had to turn to eating your livestock. Horses were vital to the nation's military. When you have weak or starving horses and weak men, you become a weak country and more vulnerable to surrounding nations. And at this time, Assyria is very powerful and has their eye on Israel. Israel is in a great depression. I'm going to drink some. A great depression, but this story ends differently because God loves Israel and he will not let them die. And he tells us exactly how he feels about the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples in the earth who are on the face of the earth, this is a good story 
about God's great love for his people. And this is where our story begins. And this drought just didn't happen. God sent this drought. And I know you're thinking, wait a minute. Wait a minute. God sent a drought? You just told me that they were his treasured possession, that he loved them, they're his chosen people, and he loves them, and he won't let them die. Why would he send a drought on the nation of Israel? To answer that question, we need to go back um, in a little bit of time before the drought and see how we got here. Do you remember Kathy talking about the Battle of Jericho? Okay, since then, well, during that time, um, the 12 tribes of Israel um, inhabited Israel, and they grew, and they had a form of government, and they're doing well. They had judges, and then they had kings. And the first king, you've probably heard of all these kings, was King Saul, then King David, and then David's son, Solomon. And you might remember Solomon was very wise, and he built the temple of the Lord in Israel where people came to worship the one true God. But Solomon had a major distraction and made some poor choices. He loved women. And not just one or two. He had 700 wives. Um, Can you imagine uh, being married to someone who had 699 other women in their life? I wouldn't feel very special. Um, He... um, he married other wives, and these wives were from other nations. So, and he just ignored um, God's, God's commandment that he gave them in 1 Kings 11 to not to marry foreign women. And this is what God said. You shall not enter in, into a marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after other gods. And that's exactly what happened. Those women pulled um, Solomon away to worship other gods and bring gods to the nation of Israel. And Solomon went, and he did it. He he was influenced by these wives. Um, After Solomon, um, there was a civil war. And remember, there were 12 tribes of Judah, I mean, Israel. Ten of those tribes stayed in, in Israel in the northern kingdom and two in the southern And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He named it Judah. And Jeroboam, who was big in the military, was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. And this was as a result of a civil war in Israel. So now we have a divided kingdom, two kingdoms. And in Judah, there were just a few good kings. This story takes place in the northern kingdom of Israel, and there are absolutely no good kings. So, and every single king was worse and more evil than the one before him. In this story, we land on the eighth king of Israel, and his name is Ahab. And Ahab was a no-good king. And when I say no good, that means he led the country in idol worship. Um, There were sacrifices to other gods. And um, you might remember also when Kathy taught last week, Um, In the battle of Jericho, once it was destroyed and God tore the walls down, he said that they should never build those walls back up or else the first and second son of the builder would, um, it would be at the expense of the first and second son. Guess what happened under the leadership and approval of Ahab? 
a builder named Hiel, I can't pronounce his name, rebuilt the walls of Joshua at the expense of his first and his second son, just as God had, God had said. Ahab was a bad king, and he reigned from the capital of Samaria. Can I have map number two? Um, who's Samaria on there? See Samaria? That's the capital of Israel. That's where Ahab lives. If you do not recognize the name Ahab, I promise you, you will recognize his wife's name, Jezebel. Does that ring a bell? I just had to say that. Um, Jezebel was his wife, and Jezebel was from the city of Sidon. See, way north up there in the city of Sidon. Um, So Ahab picks a wife that's outside Israel. Does that sound familiar? They also worshiped gods, and their main god was Baal. Jezebel was a wicked woman, and guess what she brought to Israel when she joined Ahab in Samaria? Baal idols, and lots of them, and she had an agenda to lead Israel in the worship of Baal. And Ahab went right along with it. This is just a mini lesson for me and for wives out there. We have a big influence over our husbands, and we need to be careful with, um, with how we influence our husbands away from God with distractions or to God um, and encouraging them in their faith and their walk and putting God first in their life. Ahab approved of Jezebel's killing the prophets of God. There were still prophets in the land. And he, um, she um, executed them all. And while she was reducing the number of the Lord's prophets, she was increasing the prophets of Baal. In fact, Jezebel was feeding and financially supporting 850 prophets of Baal. Her, her country's starving. They have no money, but yet she's putting all, anything she has left into these prophets of Baal. She led, influenced the country toward the worship of something that wasn't even real. Baal was not real. It was a false god. I remember when my youngest daughter, Evie, was real little. I used to do this real silly thing when we ate uh, bananas. She loved bananas. And so before she ate it, you know, a banana looks like a phone. And so before she ate a banana, I would um, have to ask the banana permission that she could eat it. So I would say... Hello? Yes? Evie wants to eat you. Is that okay? And um, I know you moms would understand this of toddlers. You do anything to make them laugh. You stoop really low. Um, And she would laugh and laugh and laugh. And um, after a while, she didn't laugh anymore. She believed that that this banana was telling me, it's okay, it's good for you, I'm good for her, let her eat me. And And after a while, she just got used to that. And sometimes when I'm in a hurry and I'd give her a banana, she'd say, Mom, you have to ask if it's okay if I eat the banana. Oh, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. <laughs> and a, a few years ago, um, you know, she's almost 13. A few years ago, I tried it again, and I did bring and answered the phone, and she just rolled her eyes and goes, Mom, <laughs> give me the banana. So I don't do that anymore, but I had convinced her that this banana was real, and there was something, some, there was some lie, something living and real human going on with this banana. I tricked her. Uh, the Israelites were also tricked, 
And they were deceived into believing Baal was a god. So what is Baal? It's not a who, it's a what. And what did the Canaanites believe about him? So I have a picture of Baal. Can I have a number one? Okay, there he is. Can y'all see? See Baal? Okay. Um, this is, I, I was kind of shocked by it when I saw this. It's pretty much a piece of metal. And I couldn't find uh, the very beginnings of Baal, like who actually made him. But obviously, some man decided to go in his backyard and have a handicraft project. And this could have been his tenth try, who knows. And he ended up um, crafting this, this Baal idol. Eventually, um, he named him Baal, which means Lord or Master. And he attached powers to it, or people um, all together attached powers to this little piece of metal and called it a god. They mass-produced it and made more, put them all over the city, and convinced and deceived everyone that this little handicraft project had powers. Can you believe they did that? Can you believe they were so deceived for um, this veil? Um, here's what they believed about Baal. They believed that Baal was the giver of life. He was the god of rain. He was the god of agriculture. They believed if crops grew, it was because of Baal, and they praised Baal. He um, was in charge of thunder. When they heard thunder outside, they would, they would say, that's Baal talking to us. That was his voice. You know, I, um, I remember back in junior high and, and high school um, studying Greek mythology. And do you remember Zeus and Poseidon, those gods? And when they, Poseidon came out of the water, it's this huge giant man, and his head reaches the skies, and he has muscles this huge. Well, I thought for all the powers of creation that gave this bale, I kind of thought he looked at a little wimpy. Like, I thought this would be this huge, big god, and it's this, like, tiny little scrawny little guy. Um, I would love the map backed up, if that's okay, and then it's the last. Um, Baal, they also gave a dwelling place. So he got to live somewhere, and he, his dwelling place was Mount Carmel. And I don't know if you see the little triangle, but there's Mount Carmel. There's the Kishon River and the Great Sea to the left, which is the Mediterranean. It was called the Great Sea back then. Um, so that's Mount Carmel, and that's where, where Baal was supposed to live. This is where their rituals took place, and this is where their sacrifices took place. And um, it, they sacrificed children. They sacrificed, baby, sacrificed babies. They felt if we, they gave Baal their first fruits of their womb, he would in turn give them, um, multiply the fruits of the ground for them and keep them alive. They were so deceived, so far from God, truth so far from truth. God always intended for the people of Israel to worship him only. He gave instructions to Moses and the Israelites a long time ago, and those instructions were to be obeyed from generation to generation. And here they are in Leviticus 26, 1, 3, and 4. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it, for I am the Lord. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, 
and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Productivity of the earth was always related to obedience to God. When they were obedient, the land was fertile and crops would grow when they were fed. When they were disobedient, it would dry up. And God, because just like we discipline our children, had to discipline the Israelites. Deuteronomy 8, 5, and 6 says, Know that in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. So here comes the discipline. And God uses a prophet, and that prophet's name is Elijah. And he's from the land of Tish um, in Gilead right there. And God tells Elijah, and a prophet is really just an ordinary man that, um, who seeks after God and serves the Lord that God calls to speak for him, and that's who Elijah is. So he calls Elijah, and he, he tells him to appear before Ahab and tell him there will be no dew and no rain in the land of Israel for several years. Okay, if that were me and I knew that uh, uh, Jezebel was killing prophets, I'd deliver my news and say, got to go. Get out of there. God does take care of Elijah. He hides him um, by a brook, and he has ravens feed him meat and manna in the evening and in the morning. So God, his provider, has cared for him during these three years, so he's not in danger. The drought begins just as God said it would. And Elijah becomes a wanted man all over Israel. I imagine if we were in Israel, there were those wanted signs all over Israel. If you see this man, bring him to us in Samaria. While Jezebel and Ahab are in pursuit of Elijah to kill him, God is pursuing the Israelites, but not to give them death, but to give them life. This drought served a purpose. It was for their own good. He wanted them to know that he was their provider. As provider, God had the power to withhold the blessing of rain in their life so they would recognize their dependence on him. This drought was discipline, loving discipline for the Israelites. Not only did God leave his people without life-sustaining rain, his voice was no longer heard in Israel because he's hidden Elijah. So Israel is spiritually and physically starving, all with the purpose that during these three years, they just feel the weight of their sin. And they repent and leave their idol worship and turn to God. This drought did not bring repentance. So after three years, God calls Elijah again. Elijah! I want you to go show yourself to Ahab again. And this time I want you to tell him, I will send rain upon the earth. Now what do you think Elijah, the most wanted man in Israel, did? Let's read um, verse, uh, we're in 1 Kings 18.15 and let's see how Elijah responds. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand... I will surely show myself to him today. Elijah's heart is devoted to God. God's word is followed by direct obedience. 
Um, I think this, the meaning of Elijah's name is so um, perfect. His name means the Lord is my God. And that's the title of the le- this lesson. The Lord my God is a living God. He's actively pursuing to rescue his people. And he continues to pursue the Israelites. Instead of letting them die, he chooses to show compassion and mercy. And in his mercy, God intervenes by sending a message of deliverance and uses the the prophet of Elijah to deliver that message. All right, let's start reading um, chapter 18. We're on verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all of Israel to me at Mount Carmel. And the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Asherah is the female counterpart to Baal. So, so Ahab sent to all, the people, to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it into pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call on your God, and I will call on the name of my God, the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Ahab's response really gives us insight to where his heart is identifying Elijah as a troubler. And I love Elijah's response. I'm not the troubler. You're the troubler for abandoning God and worshiping, worshiping Baal. Ahab was so far from God, he just couldn't even connect the dots. He couldn't connect that what Elijah said, a prophet of God, came true, and that here we are in this drought and that it's a, it's a um, consequence of God's judgment. And Elijah proceeds to invite Ahab to a contest, and he gives him all the details. Who will attend? All of Israel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, I looked up how many people can fit in the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, and it said 105,000 people. Um, I know in Israel at that time, there were at least over, just men alone, 900,000 people. So imagine the Dallas Cowboys Stadium times probably 15. And Elijah is in the center, and they're all surrounding Elijah. This contest, he tells them where it takes place, on Mount Carmel. And the terms of the contest, the sacrifice of a bull, the winner, the God who accepts 
the sacrifice, and it answers by fire. Because uh, the people um, agreed to this, we know that they thought this was a great idea. The odds were in their favor. Of course, Mount Carmel, that was uh, the most opportune place for Baal to answer. That's his dwelling place. And they outnumbered Elijah 850 to 1, and they got to choose the bull, the very first bull. How could they lose? But we know that this contest was over before it even started. This is no contest at all. We cannot come up against God. Before this contest could begin, Elijah has a huge audience and is so purposeful and intentional in everything he does while he has this audience. And he uses this opportunity to ask the Israelites a question. How long will you go limping between two opinions? And they said, nothing. Their silence shows they were lost. There was no devotion, no faith in God, and points the finger at their leader, Ahab, who failed to obey to lead Israel in the worship of the one true God. This is just so clever, and God is so big, because wait till you see what happens in verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for he's a god. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or... Perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up. And they cried aloud and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, that's the bull, the offering. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. This is a crazy scene. They're working so hard to get their God to pay attention to them and answer them. And it says they limped around their altar. Um, Limping is used a couple times in this passage, and um, it means that hobbling or walking unevenly. The NIV uses the word waver, um, which means undecided, waffling, and both imply that they doubted their faith in God. And they waffled in their commitment to God. It was a great physical representation of their heart. Elijah taunts them to shout louder and said, maybe he's deep in thought. Maybe that little iron figurine's thinking about something. Maybe he's busy. He's traveling. He's sleeping. He's going to the bathroom. All these are so comical. And they responded to Elijah's taunting and they worked even harder. I can't believe they thought this would even work. So deceived. This might sound cruel on Elijah's part, but he is lovingly pointing out that their God is powerless and doesn't exist. Psalm 135, 15 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have ears but do not see. Um, they have oh sorry, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, 
nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This verse describes the Israelites as they have become like their idols. They have eyes, but they're blind to truth. They don't hear truth. They do not understand why Elijah is there. Elijah exposed their hopelessness to themselves, and two times we see it stated, no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Now that's depressing, and I'm so glad that's not the end of the story. Already we see a huge, stark contrast between God and Baal. Our God always responds. He's never too busy. And there's three verses on your verse sheet that address all these, um, his characteristics when he listens to us. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep nor slumber. In Proverbs 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Psalm 34:17, when the righteous cry out for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He's a living God. He watches over us day and night. He not only hear us, hears us, but always, always responds. Once Elijah crippled their belief in God, it was God's turn to demonstrate his power. So let's read verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. And all the people came near to him. And he replied, the altar of the he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he did, said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So much that the water ran around the altar and filled the trenches also with water. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel... Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant. That I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that these people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood, and the stones and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook of the Kishon and slaughtered them there. Um, this is probably one of my, one of my favorite parts of the um, 
pieces of the Bible. I just love it. Um, this altar is in ruins. My guess is that Jezebel, or people that work for Jezebel, destroyed this altar of the Lord. And Elijah uses 12 stones to rebuild this altar. And again, he's so purposeful and intentional of using every moment that he has with the people of Israel. And I imagine him as he's grabbing these stones that he's teaching and talking to the Israelites, reminding them, remember when we were one nation? Remember when we were 12 tribes, one nation, Israel? One God set apart to worship the one true God Um, set apart not to be like other nations. Remember that? This is a great, um, so symbolic of him reminding them of who God is, the one true God. After he rebuilt the altar, he placed the bull on the altar, and two seahs, it's pronounced seahs, I think I'm pronouncing that right, of water were equivalent to six gallons. So poured three times, it's 18 gallons of water that were pulled on the altar. So 18 gallons would completely soak the bull, the wood, and fill up the trench, which was like a moat that was around this altar. Elijah decreased his odds even more so that God's power would be seen by the Israelites. Then Elijah prayed. He didn't exhaust himself dancing or waving his arms around or cutting himself. He did a humble prayer asking that the they would, Israelites would turn their hearts back to God. He wanted what God wanted, that their hearts would be completely devoted to him. This fire is a miraculous scene. Imagine the clouds looking, look up and the clouds are parting and the heaven it goes even further than the clouds up to the heavens the heavens are parting and i don't know if you've ever been in a texas thunderstorm i'm assuming all of you have and had a lightning bolt that struck so close to you that just it catches your breath it's very scary because you think i could have been fried by that little lightning bolt Imagine a fire that's thousands times wider and more powerful than a lightning bolt, the little lightning bolt that scares you. It's so wide that you can probably see it from Judah and Assyria. If we can see stars and the moon from other countries, I bet this fire was visible to other countries. And it was hot. If it was wide, it was so hot and so light and so bright, they probably had to put their hands up and they couldn't even look at it. This was an amazing fire. Elijah, the servant of God, with one prayer, receives a mighty response. God didn't just take the bull. He took everything. I imagine the look on the Israelites' faces. So they're standing there, and their jaws are on the floor. And they look over at their altar that they built to Baal, bull's still there, the wood's still there, and they look at their arms, and they're bleeding, and they're tired, and then they look at the altar that Elijah made to God and what God did, and there's nothing. They responded, because Baal, the giver of life, God of rain, God, the author of life, the creator of life, creative creator of rain, lord of nature, lord of all mankind, makes a statement, 
I am the Lord. God demonstrated his, his power for the purpose of being, bringing repentance in their heart and the Israelites respond in unity. The Lord, he is God. Two times, the Lord, he is God. Elijah's prayer was answered. Their hearts turned back to God. For those who did not repent, God has to administer judgment. Now, I know some of you have probably seen those reality shows of judges, about judges in courtrooms like Judge Judy or some other courtroom show. Because of their education and their experience, they are... um, they have the ability and the power to decide who is guilty and who is innocent. They have the power to sentence people and decide the guilty party, what are the wages for your sin? Is it community service? Is it a fine? Is it jail? In severe cases, it's um, capital punishment. They have that right. God is holy and righteous. He is without sin. He is sin. Less And because he's righteous, he can't overlook sin, and he has to judge it. But God doesn't need evidence, because he can look straight at their hearts and administer sentencing. He separates the righteous from the un- unrighteous. The unrepentant prophets of Baal receive death. To the Israelites, who now proclaim the Lord as their God, life. Because God is righteous, he must judge sin and expose hearts. Jeremiah 1.16, the Lord says, And I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil and for forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the work of their own hands. Worshipping idols, what is deserving of death. God could have just obliterated them all at the very beginning. He had every right. He had the authority to do it. But because he's merciful and compassionate, he delayed judgment. Then he sent a prophet. He sent a drought so they could feel the weight of their sin. And if that wasn't enough, he sent a fire from heaven. There are numerous examples in the Bible where God... um, uses fire to judge nations, but he always provides a way out, always provides a way to life. There's always a faithful messenger sent by God to call the people back to him. And when God reigns in our heart, he gives us life-sustaining reign. Let's see, let's check in on Elijah and see what happens in verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up and drink, for there's the sound of rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel and bowed himself down to the earth, on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said again, Go again seven times. At the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. In a little while, while the heavens grew black with the um, while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. 
And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. God promised to send rain, and he did because he always fulfills his promises. He tells Ahab to go eat, go eat and drink. And I'm sure Ahab had not um, had, the events were pretty exciting during the day. He hadn't eaten and drinking, drank, and so he went and filled himself up. But Elijah went straight to the top of Mount Carmel and prayed. Prayed they would turn their hearts back to God. Praying the curse would be lifted. Praying for Ahab's heart. But God, and God pursues Ahab yet again. Ahab, after being warned of torrential rains closing in, gets in his chariot and rode off to Jezreel. Now Jezreel, why Jezreel? Jezreel is his winter capital. That's where he went. And you know who is living at Jezreel right now? Jezebel. She's there and he's running towards Jezebel. And here's another miraculous scene. God is so merciful, and he keeps pursuing Ahab. Imagine Ahab in his chariot, and he's running, riding his chariot to Jezreel, and in front of him, God's given Elijah these superpowers, these super running powers. It's true. He's running so much faster than the chariot right in front of him. He tucks his cloak in and runs 16 miles ahead of him. So Ahab's view in front of him is Elijah just running in front of him. He sees God's power in Elijah again. And then behind him is God showing um, himself even more. He's surrounded by God's power. God is riding on a chariot of thunder and rain is chasing Ahab. I just want to, and he keeps running, I just want to ask Ahab, what are you thinking? Don't you think? He's seen so much. He's seen the power of God. Um, He's seen the miraculous fire. He's seen the drought. He's seen um, his prophets get slaughtered. And yet he makes this choice to depart from God and keeps on fleeing. He's just like those idols that were described in Psalm 135. When they worship idols, they become just like them. They can't see. They can't hear. How could he not see what was going on? How could he not hear Elijah's Elijah's message? There's a verse in Psalm 16 too. It's not on your verse sheet. That says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. If you ever want to read the rest of the story about Ahab in the next few chapters of Kings, his troubles increase even to death and has a sad ending for Ahab. I heard one commentator title this chapter of Kings, Departure Brings Disaster. So true in the life of Ahab. There will always be people like Ahab. It doesn't matter how much power they'll see, but they will continue to reject God. But for those who repent and call the Lord their God, life-sustaining rain awaits. In his love, God fulfilled his promise to bring life-giving rain and save the Israelites from death. God in his unchanging plans, he's still the same God that we have today to rescue us from drought and from hopelessness. The New Testament, I love that he gives us his word. The New Testament is full of biblical truth and these stories in the Old Testament illustrates those truths through stories. 
This great Old Testament story is a powerful foreshadowing of what's to come 900 years later. We see another display of God's great power in an even greater sacrifice written about in the New Testament. Elijah and Jesus prayed the same prayer with the same heart. Um, Just before God sent fire from heaven, Elijah prays, Lord, answer me that these people may know you. And God responded with fire. Jesus, just before he gave himself to be the atoning sacrifice for us in John 17, prays this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority all over flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We are his treasured possession. He pursues us so that we may know him. How do we know God and who he is? He sent us his word. His word tells us who he is. In this book are great stories, and every time we read it, he's communicating to us. He's telling us something about himself. Um, during, um, and he's teaching us, his word teaches us that the same hope and future that Israelites have is the same, is available for us also. And I don't know if you ever get to come to a salad luncheon or hear a testimony, um, but you get to hear stories about how... Um, People who have been in a drought have come to know um, Christ, and they were given a hope in a future just like the Israelites. The Word of God is living and active, and Hebrews 4.12 says, For the Word of God is living, active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God also sends us his word to remind us who he is when we slip away into a spiritual drought. We all have idols in our life, and only you know what those are. We all have them. Um, For Ahab and Solomon, it was women were a distraction, and they forgot truth. Hebrews uh, 2, 1 says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift drift away. It is important that we be in the the word of God so we are equipped to recognize these distractions so we aren't pulled away from his truth that are tempting us. We need to remember to follow him and we are reminded who he is, that he's our provider, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's loving. All right, let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for um, the gift of your word and that you reveal so much about yourself um, in these stories in the Old Testament. And I pray that we will keep them and remember them and hide them in our hearts so that we are tempted to um, fall into distractions, that we will remember your truth and hold on to you and what is true. I pray that you'd bless our week, and I thank you for um, all that you've given us. In your name I pray. Amen.